Colleagues, uh, to this special Saturday show. Uh, for those of you who are used to tuning in on Wednesday, uh, we had some technical difficulties and um, we were not able to do uh, the show with Susan Griffin. But uh, because of her incredible uh, flexibility, uh, we have her with us today. And uh, I am uh, so honored uh, to have uh, you know this incredible scholar with us who is going to uh, share some um, you know some wisdom. Uh, so that we can understand why things are the way they are today. Uh, and our topic uh, has never been more relevant uh, you know, than it is today. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the book Woman and Nature with Susan Griffin, uh, with um, patriarchy just run amok, uh, with white men destroying the planet, uh, and Black Lives Matter uh, you know, supporters protesting in the street. Um, I think what we're going to talk about today really uh, explains um, you know, why we're still struggling uh, for equality, for a level playing field. Uh, if we ever wondered how patriarchy came to be, uh, I think um, some of your questions are going to be answered today. Uh, Susan Griffin, she has authored uh, over 20 books. She's esteemed both for her innovative thought and creative literary style. Uh, she's considered a leading feminist and an envir environmental thinker. And uh, she's addressed a wide range of social and political questions, including things like uh, nuclear weapons, uh, rape, uh, no doubt rape as a weapon of war, uh, pornography, democracy. Um, and I'll describe uh, her book, Women, uh, Woman in Nature, in what I believe are her own words. Uh, she says, um, the book reveals and challenges the assumption uh, that shaped the culture, thoughts, politics, and practices in the West, uh, the fundamental idea that nature is inferior to white men, and that women, people of color, uh, being closer to nature are also inferior, uh, that nature or matter is separate from and opposed to spirit, and therefore women and people of color are more sensual, emotional, and thus intellectually and spiritually inferior. Uh, the book, Woman and Nature, is driven by a very different assumption that spirit and matter are not separate, that nature has intelligence and meaning, that we are part of nature and all equal. So uh, you'll be glad you tuned in for this. Uh, you'll want to tell your friends. Uh, and uh, we're going to be with her in two seconds here after I take care of a bit of housekeeping. Uh, first, I want to let you know about uh, a couple upcoming shows. Next Wednesday on the 29th, uh, I will have with me Cindy Rassicott. Uh, she uh, is going to be talking to us about her book. Uh, it's a memoir. It's uh, titled Finding Venerable Mother, A Daughter's Spiritual Quest to Thailand, uh, and it chronicles her adventures uh, along uh, the spiritual path she took. 
uh, on August 5th, I have Deanne Quarry with me. We're going to be talking about Hecate, and our show topic is uh, Hecate Reemerging. She is Roaring. And then on August 12th, um, Margaret Rigolioso is back with me. Uh, we haven't had her on the show in a while, but uh, uh, she's been doing these wonderful classes on uh, the real Mother Mary. And that's what we're going to be talking about here. Uh, the show topic is Uncloaking the Real Mother Mary, Priestess, Master, Goddess, and Mentor for Your In Session Path. Absolutely. I think those are all going to be great shows, and I appreciate you tuning in. And just one last thing before we get to uh, Susan. Uh, Pat, uh, the roving goddess reporter for the show, has sent in uh, something of value that I want to share with you. No doubt if you're turning on the news uh, you know, it uh, it has you stressed out. Uh, just uh, going outside probably has you stressed out. So, you know, this is just a little bit of uh, guidance, a little bit of inspiration, um, uh, because I think it's really useful. She, it, and this is what it says. It says, I know I cannot control if others follow the rules of social distancing. I cannot control the actions of others or predicting what will happen or other people's motives. I cannot control the amount of toilet paper at the store, how long this will all last, or how others react. I can control and I will focus on my positive attitude, my kindness and grace, turning off the news, limiting my social media, how I follow CDC recommendations, my own social distancing, and finally, finding fun things to do at home. So, Pat, uh, thank you very much uh, for sending that in for listeners. That was from Pat, our roving goddess reporter. So uh, let me uh, welcome Susan Griffin to the show. Um, Susan, uh, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Glad to be here. Thank you so much uh, for uh, taking your time to be on the show here today. Um, the other book I know you're famous for, uh, it's a Pulitzer Prize finalist, A Chorus of Stones, The Private Life of War. Uh, in its description, it blends history and memoir. Um, and uh, you've also had a, a many other awards and honors. Uh, you've received the Fred Cody Award for Lifetime Literary Achievement uh, from the Northern California Book Reviewers, uh, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Northern California Book Award for Nonfiction, an honorary doctorate from the Graduate Theological Union, a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, and the Commonwealth Silver Award for Poetry. Uh, your play Voices won an Emmy. Uh, Susan has also been featured in numerous films, including She's Beautiful When She's Angry and Berkeley in the 60s, uh, which she co-authored the script and provided the narrator's voice. Um, and you still find time to um, uh, teach writing and workshops. Uh, Susan, you, you have uh, squeezed three lifetimes into one. <laughs> um, how do you manage to find the time? <laughs> Well, it part it partly is a it's a necessity, you know, just to. Um, but but I, I it, it you know I think that time is uh, we all know that it's very subjective, and uh, it, that a lot of the writers of the 20th century 
the last century uh, wrote about that, Virginia Woolf and Proust, and it's very subjective. And, and for me, um, when I'm doing something I love, it, it's, it's not uh, onerous, laborious time. It's time that expands. No, I, I understand that. It's your passion and you're following it and uh, everything else just sort of drops away. And, you know, you're lucky enough uh, that people have noticed uh, uh, the incredible contribution and uh, the value of your work. And, uh, you know, fortunately you've been uh, honored for, you know, all of these uh, these, these wonderful contributions. Um, so was Woman in Nature the beginning of it all? Uh, actually, um, no, I wrote an article about rape that was um, sort of the first uh, feminist uh, theoretical approach to rape um, in this country anyway. I don't know if there were others in other languages. Um, and uh, I also had a whole body of poetry that I had been reading publicly and um, so, and, and voices, my play voices had, had uh, been produced before Women in Nature came out. Okay, okay. So, all right, so you're, uh, you know, we're, today we're going to talk about Woman in Nature, and hopefully this will be fun for you, and you'll come back another time and talk about uh, your other uh, incredible book, A Chorus of Stones. Um, so, Woman in Nature. Um, I know, Susan, um, you know, from being out there in the world giving classes uh, from all the people I've talked to, that um, a lot of folks really don't understand how patriarchy began. They don't know about this idea that um, perhaps we can track back to Plato. I think you're going to explain all of that to us. But um, where did this idea of patriarchy come into be? How did it come to be? And and women in nature uh, marginalized. Um, I, I know it's the separation of spirit and matter, but for someone who's never heard this concept before, do you mind explaining it so we all start on the same page? Yeah. Um, uh, actually, in, in Women in Nature, I attribute, I begin uh, the first section, which is on matter, and it sort of lists various philosophical opinions um, about the nature of nature and the nature of women. And in both cases, it's, it's, it's you know, that we are considered uh, uh, inferior and without spirit and, with, and, and, and something to be distrusted. But, it, you know, it, it's a very big question you ask, and I, I don't want to be so prideful as to <laughs> offer an answer there are many answers to that and many theories about where patriarchy began. But generally in, in my work, not in Woman in Nature, but in, in my work in general, I've linked it to uh, the beginning of empire and war, that, um, that warfare uh, gave a lot of power to men because they, they were in perpetual warfare and, um, and, and there had to be standing armies. And it actually not only gave power to men, but it shaped what, what we call masculinity today. So I don't believe masculinity is really biological. It's, just, it's a sociological uh, uh, invention. But it's been with us for thousands of years now. 
Okay. Um, well, and and I know you know yeah there there are other theories you know how we lost the goddess uh, uh, you know how uh, how patriarchy started. I know another that I I mean I don't I'm not aware of all of them, but another I, I you know that's crossed my radar screen was the idea that um, men wanted to deny nature. They didn't like the idea of death. And, uh, you know, patriarchy with this idea of the Almighty Father where you could live forever in heaven, that appealed to them more than um, acknowledging the life cycle, which is nature and by association women. Um, have you heard that one? Oh, well, I, I was one of the first people to articulate that. But, but I, I, I um, y- you know, it, the... the, the um, it, it's alive and well today when you look at uh, Trump and um, his denial of uh, COVID up until, you know, five minutes ago, his denial of, of the need to to take measures as a nation to have a strategy. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's a consonant with uh, his whole life in reality shows, and it's such an ironic name because the reality show he was on and most reality shows are completely fake and um his uh his uh role what was his pro- uh, program called the apprentice he was presented as this very successful businessman and actually he had five bankruptcies and he was sort of at the end of his tether uh financially he couldn't get loans anywhere but he played the role of a successful businessman telling people how to Operate or how to conduct themselves in business, and um, it, it's that's his relation to uh, reality is basically fictional, you know. That he and he, and he, it's 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 a psychological reality. It's a psychological um, uh, relationship to reality that um, you, you believe you can control reality and make reality, rather than that you are doing you're dancing with reality. Yes, you can have an effect on reality, but reality also has a huge effect on you. And let's substitute for the word reality nature, which is everything, and we're part of nature, so we can't take ourselves out of nature. We're affected by nature. So it, it, all of these things, you know, that that's one very profound way that the COVID crisis um, is connected to our denial of nature and to climate change, but also climate change, as you probably know, uh, created the conditions for COVID to arise. True, true, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, I look at Trump and I see him as really – uh, patriarchy on steroids, toxic masculinity on steroids. He is yes. the epitome of of, sterile, of uh, patriarchy and predator capitalism. And um, and and you know what? I, I I don't know. Sometimes I sit back and I feel like as I, when I do look at the news, I'm I'm a fly on the wall or it, it's surreal, and I'm watching a play. Uh, you know, because so many of us have said, you know, so many of our institutions would have to crumble in order for us to build something anew. And uh, I don't know, I feel 
like we're watching it every day. And while it's certainly anxiety-producing, on the other hand, I think it's stimulating, too, uh, because it's like we are seeing the prophecies play out uh, in our lifetime, you know, and the potential uh, that we have uh, to actually rid ourselves of, um, you know, of of this... um, you know, this toxicity. I mean, AOC, you know, standing on the floor of Congress uh, calling out uh, that guy, Yoho. uh, And, uh, you know, I don't even want to give him the the benefit of calling him by the title that he is. You know, he's another one of these uh, toxic men uh, who demean women, who have no respect for women. And, you know, here we saw it on stage, you know, uh, just like, uh, you know, women have come out with the Me Too movement. Epstein is gone. Weinstein is uh, being held accountable. And, of course, there's so many others. But, um, you know, we're we're seeing it happen. I I mean, is this all making you hopeful? Well, you know, as you said, it's it's a hopeful time, but it's also a very frightening time. And it, it could go either way. Even the election could go either way. There still is there are still a hundred days before the election and anything can happen in that period. It's very nerve wracking because it, I think if Trump is elected again, uh basically democracy is in trouble and perhaps even the whole uh existence of humanity on earth is in trouble. Because um, if the United States doesn't get COVID under control, um, it, that's a threat to everybody on the on the face of the earth, um, and a, a number of mammals too. I mean, you know, life as we know it is 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 under uh, under threat at this point. Uh, right. Right. I, 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 I get hopeful. that. I'm hope- Sorry, I'm hopeful. I, I am hopeful at the same time. I mean, you know, at these moments of crisis, there always is the possibility of very good things coming out of it. But you know, we also have to be aware, and I think it's part of the process. We have to keep an awareness all the time of how many people is it now in, in the United States who who died? Um, 140,000, is that it? You know, is that the right number? Uh, yeah, I think we're pretty close, 000. pretty close. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you know all the all the loss involved in that. Not only their lives lost, but you know the, the people who were close to them and loved them. And a nine-year-old girl was one of the last deaths that they talked about. I mean, it, it, it's just um, you know it's unforgivable uh, what is happening. I mean, I, I really think that the Trump and um, uh, the, the Republicans in the Senate uh, are guilty of manslaughter. Yeah, 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 I do too. In fact, um, I am amazed that by this point, uh, the press uh, is not talking in terms of um, uh, dereliction of duty. Um, uh, I I forget all the different uh, things he could be called, you know, besides murderer, besides traitor. Uh, you know he's putting people in harm's way deliberately. Yeah. I mean, there's 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 laws against that. If you or I uh, put people's lives in danger, uh, you know we we would we would be charged and and you know and, and go to jail. Uh, and and I don't think he has any particular immunity. 
that allows him to do this. I mean, I actually called into the Tom Hartman show and asked him, does the president have immunity? Uh, and he said, uh, no, he doesn't have immunity. He said um, that, uh, you know, this is just the press uh, trying to respect the office of the presidency. But, you know, this guy isn't <laughs> respecting the office of the presidency. Um, so I don't know. I feel like in a way the press is complicit, uh, you know, and maybe it's the corporate media, and we know corporations are making a killing right now uh, on the pandemic as average people uh, are in crisis. Uh, but but I think that's part of it, too. You know, they haven't ratcheted up the narrative to fit what's going on. Well, yes. I mean, I, I watch uh, MSNBC and CNN a lot, so... Otherwise, you know, it, it, I, I, I find it uh, really uh, excruciating to be lied to, uh, particularly uh, in, in, a, in the public sphere. And um, that's what you have the experience of with a lot of the um, mainstream media. But they're coming around, too. Even the local news stations seem to be, you know, the TV news, they seem to be aware of, uh, because it's, it's become so extreme. I mean, uh, yeah. Trump is really extreme. Yeah. Um, well, okay, well, let's, um, you know, it's so easy to get sidetracked here. Let's, <laughs> let's get back to uh, a woman in nature. Um, we, were, we were in the process of explaining how this separation between mind and spirit and matter happened. Um, we, you know, I, we, we kind of covered... Uh, matter uh, and and nature, but but talk about this disconnect. You know, how did it become fragmented, um, and uh, and and just sort of connect the dots. What the ramifications were. Um, well, in in uh, Greece, uh, at, at a certain time, uh, well, actually. Um, Macedonia and, and the Greek Empire before that. Uh, when Alexander the Great, for instance, was a child, he would be raised in the mother's house, in the mother's tent, and he would be raised to be sensual and enjoy life and, and sensitive uh, emotionally to others. And then when he reached a certain age, I, I don't know, somewhere between 8 and 10, he would be shifted over to the men's camp, and there he would be almost tortured, you know, uh, made fun, humiliated for his feminine ways, and um, toughened up and made into what is called a man so that he could become a soldier. So I, I think that um, our, our idea of masculinity is one that separates sensual experience from uh, both uh, decision-making and uh, action, so from intellect and action. And um, that separation really has to occur in a soldier. Um, it, it, it's, it's persisted in military training until now, um, until it, it still is there. It has to be. In the Marine Corps manual that I used when I was writing A Course of Stone, um, it, it says you, you must crush the personality so you rebuild him into a soldier. You crush crush 
the natural responses. The natural responses are not to are sensual and emotional, but your your natural responses then when you're being attacked uh, with mortars or bullets or whatever weapon is aimed at you is to run the other way. That would be the normal intelligent thing to do, but you're being trained to follow orders, and so you have to leave about 75% of yourself behind and become uh, what we call masculine, manly. And and uh, that that also holds for uh, sh- sh- killing somebody else. And many there are many stories of soldiers who basically had other soldiers in their gun sights on the other side and did, and chose not to pull a bullet because they couldn't do it. Yeah, they couldn't kill another human being when they actually saw that person. They could they could lob a mortar or something into into the space in front of them, not knowing where it would land. But when they're looking at a human being, they couldn't do it. But the training is is aimed at making them able to commit murder, and that is a separation between uh, a separation of self, and it's it's even more severe than the separation of matter from spirit. It's because matter and spirit are so, in fact, in reality, indivisible. You can't divide them; they're not separate. And that's what Einstein discovered, by the way. <laughs> I mean, in other words, um, in modern physics, the concept of spirit became energy. That happened around the 17th, 18th century. Instead of spirit, when science was studying it, and they, they still thought of it as spirit, but it was, that's what energy was. So in modern day time, energy stands for spirit and matter is, is matter, but, but flesh and trees and earth and all, you know, everything on the planet is matter. What what um, what Einstein discovered, uh, and that's what the formula E equals mc squared reflects, is that there is energy at the heart of matter in the form of atoms that have electrons and sub subatomic particles in them. Energy exists at the heart of matter, so you can't. There is no dividing line between matter and spirit, or matter and energy. There are one. And this 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 runs against the whole philosophy on which our uh, whole uh, societies and cultures have been based for at least two thousand or more years, more like five thousand years. But now the other part of this, though, Susan, is mind. The mind uh, gets separated from spirit and matter. And uh, I know I was reading a blog post from uh, Carol Christ, and she talked about some of her uh, uh, Yale uh, divinity professors. You know, uh, if I understood her article correctly, I'm paraphrasing here, so Carol, forgive me if I get this wrong, but what I understood her to be saying was um, because of this philosophy, which I think tracks back to possibly Plato, I know he's been blamed for it, uh, the idea of like these divinity students Carol Christ was talking about, they thought because they were men uh, as opposed to women uh, and not associated with uh, nature uh, and, you know, and you know, when they were men of the mind, it's almost as if they were deluding themselves that they were superior to um, 
you know, uh, women, nature, the, you know, the spirit and matter. Um, I, I guess, can you speak to that a little bit? You know, how does mind, um, and, you know, how does mind get separated uh, well, to, you know, delineate, you know, to fragment? Well, mind is, is, is associated with spirit. So in that tradition, they would think of spirit as uh, being, the mind being part of spirit. That's that's the way the thinking went uh, until the 20th, 21st century. Um, by the way, I just want to make a correction here. Plato didn't start this, <laughs> and he was anti-military. Okay, okay. But his parable of the cave, which has been very widely adopted, uh, certainly puts forward that that attitude that everything on the earth that is material is but a shadow of the ideas that exist. Um, above the cave, and that's where the light and knowledge and insight is, is uh, not in matter, that matter is a sort of shadowy, uh, unintelligent realm, and that the real the real reality is, is in these ideas uh, outside the cave and above. And, um, you know, I quarrel with that uh, idea, as do many feminists, but, um, but Plato didn't originate these ideas. They, they started uh, with the formation of the Greek Empire and empires before that, because there were empires before that too. So um, you, you can. You so can how does Plato get blamed? I, I mean, how does it get laid at his doorstep? Well, it isn't. I don't know who lays it at his doorstep. I don't. Oh, okay. All right. I I stand corrected then because I I I, I have it wrong. Um, okay. So. Um, and so because of that separation, that has enabled uh, patriarchy to justify um, everything they've done moving forward. Yes? Well, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's both a justification and it's, a, it's an orientation. And it's an orientation that's been around for so long that it's mistaken for reality. Uh, and, and the fact that it's put into uh, uh, the description of gender, and we raise boys that way, and we raise girls to, to facilitate. You know, if you look at the woman's role, it's to take care of all the material realities so that, so that men don't have to think about them. So they can, they can live as if they are mainly fueled by ideas. And they don't, and 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 as if they don't have to eat, or eliminate, uh, or sleep, um, uh, or, and they don't get sick because the women take care of all of that. And then if somebody is dying, the women tend to the dying, and the men don't have to be intimately involved with the process of dying, just with this the the, the um, celebrations afterwards of the soul. So so. This uh, separation between spirit and matter gets codified in gender, and then it's lived out. It's the way we live, although we're, that we've changed that. The feminist revolution has, has changed it. By the way, you can also look at that plan among the upper classes, that they have servants who are often people of color who take care of material reality so that the, so that the, the white people who are wealthy enough to have servants can pretend that they're not material themselves. 
and and therein comes the the sense of entitlement, I guess. Exactly, it feeds itself. It's a system that is self-referential and feeds itself through uh, the instit- institutionalization, um, the institution of ser- of servants, and before that of servitude, and the institution of gender and uh, ma- masculinity and femininity, both of which are um, fiction. They don't have anything to do with biological nature, a little bit. They have somewhat to do with biological nature, but uh, uh, let's say about 85% uh, fiction and 15% reality. Okay. Um, so, uh, again, you know, I want to keep bringing it back to your book, uh, Woman in Nature, because I think yes. probably a lot of my listeners um, will, you know, want to have this book in their library and uh, uh, and read it. Um, was there something in particular that inspired you to write the book, uh, other than just, you know, a woman living life in patriarchy? <laughs> yes. Um, I began to... Well, you know, I'm, I'm basically uh, philosophically minded, and some people call me a philosopher. I don't know if that's an exaggeration, but I, but I, I, I do, um, I think that way, and I was, and I, and and I was um, fascinated with the way that women are associated more with the material world and men with the intellectual world, and that women women had a different relationship to nature. And I, I went to a um, I, I, I gave a lecture uh, uh, in the Department of Agriculture, which is where um, environmental studies was at that time in the uh, 70s, um, on uh, environmentalism and feminism. They wanted me to speak to that, and I said, well, I'm not an activist in, uh, in, in the environmental movement, at the, and I wasn't at the time, um, but I said I can speak philosophically. They said, fine, we'd, we'd like to hear that. So. I spoke about the, the fact that um, in um, our uh, Judeo-Christian uh, account of, of creation that um, sin in the world is blamed on Eve and, and sin is associated with sexuality. So that women, immediately women become uh, stamped with this uh, more idea of a more sensual and uh, even uh, a radically sensual nature, and um, and then we are the ones who take out the garbage. We 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 feed people, as I said. We clean. We do the cleaning. We're associated with matter. So that's where um, that's that's. Then I after I gave that lecture, I thought this that began to interest me, and I began to notice it everywhere, and. Um, and I noticed that, for instance, I heard a lecture, I heard someone on the radio, I was listening to KPSA, I believe it's the Pacifica radio in my area, and, um, and somebody was talking about the nature of plutonium. And that's the, the piece I began with. It's written, the book is written in both poetry and much of it. And I, I was impressed with the fact that here's this uh, substance which is created by human beings. It's not natural. And it's and it's based on splitting the atoms, separating energy from matter, and we know nothing about it. We're powerless to do anything over it, but it it's highly toxic and it can kill us. So um, that that was the first section I wrote in the book. 
So it, so it became a metaphor for this uh, separation we have learned uh, and, and, and has become part of society. It, it, am I connecting the dots correctly there? Yes, that's right. It became a metaphor, and it's a reality too, both. <laughs> a course of stones, which yeah, I wrote yeah. later, deals directly with the effects of plutonium and other forms of ionizing toxic radiation. Okay, all right. Um, and so your book, uh, it, it has a, it, it, it takes a, a, a very innovative form. Um, can you explain that to listeners? How is it different um, in, in form from your average book? Yes. Um, you know, I, I started as a poet, and I, I had, as I said, I wrote an essay on rape. Uh, I, I wrote essays, but my main uh, literary form was poetry, and I loved uh, prose poetry. It wasn't a lot of it. Now it's become really popular, and there's a lot of it now being done in uh, English. But um, at that point, I had read, read uh, French poets uh, writing prose poetry, and I loved the form. And so um, it, it's written in sort of brief paragraphs that are sort of musical. It, poetry sounds sort of forbidding, but it's they're, they're perfectly easy to understand, but it's and they have a kind of musical power, and um, and uh, it 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 allowed me to explore emotional states and states of being, states of material states of being, um, embodied states in a way that I think uh, the essay form wouldn't have. Okay. Well, and and I have to admit, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. You you and I have only started uh, uh, discussing this interview uh, maybe a, a week uh, or two at the most, and uh, and I do want to read it. Um, so I would just I would imagine this is an assumption, and I'm always happy to be corrected because I want to get things right. Um, you know, this is such a heavy topic. Um, I would imagine that that gave. Um, I don't know. Maybe lightened it in in a way. Uh, you know, not that the um, you know the poetry couldn't um, be heavy, but I don't know. Kind of combining the two. Um, I don't know. It, it's almost as if you were combining the masculine and the feminine. That's a wonderful insight. Um, I I I I probably was combining the masculine. I do, and myself, I I do combine combine that. And um, because I'm I'm very intellectual, as you can probably tell, but I'm also very sensual and emotional. So, and poetry does does combine them. So thank you. Yes, I, that's true. And there's also a lot of humor. I can read you a little section if you like. But there's also humor in it. Uh, sure. Yeah. Why don't you you read something short? Yeah. Here's I'll, I'll just read part of it. I won't read the whole thing. But this is something called How the Forest Should Look. I do a lot of this comparing the situation of women to how we treat nature implicitly. So, so I do that in this section. How the forest should look, and there's, there's a number of quotes before it, but I'll just read one of them. Proper regrowth and efficient forest management of our present and prospective forested areas will assure sufficient lumber for domestic requirements and a profitable export trade. So that's from somebody named Nelson C. Brown, who wrote a book called Lumber. The trees in the forest should be tall and free from not causing limbs for most of their height. They should not taper too much between the butt and the top last saw log. They should be straight, 
Among applicants, a person with high intelligence should be sought. She should be an expert typist, a stenographer. She should be diplomatic, neat, and well-dressed. So that's just a sample of that section, but you get the idea. Right, right. I get that. I get that. Um, We're going to take a quick break here. Uh, but when we come back, um, I want to talk a little bit more, you know, beyond what we've said uh, so far about how this book, you know, relates to the issues we're facing today and, um, uh, you know, maybe um, some of the other works you've written um, that address the issues that, you've, uh, that you raise in, in Woman in Nature. Uh, how does that sound? That sounds great. Okay, great. All right, so uh, here's a word uh, from Joe Carson. Celebrate Wildness has practical instructions on how to make your own fairy ring henge, how to magically restore any place to its original wild harmony, how to feel the shapes of the earth as if they really are a part of your own body, and even how to initiate yourself into the fairy fairy path from early Ferraferia member, John Beggs. What a beautiful, inspired, and inspiring book this is. The text is a delight, augmenting, interpreting, and celebrating the drawings that the singer sometimes adds another dimension of understanding to a musical composition. It has the glow, glory, and joy of a masterpiece. Celebrate Wildness is an oversized, hardbound book on heavy paper. It is written by filmmaker Joe Carson, who made the film Dancing with Gaia. You can get it for $25 from the Ferraferia website at ferraferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. So that's especially for those of you who feel the call by the fairy faith. Uh, you'll want to take a look at Joe Carson's book, Celebrate Wildness. And uh, just to clarify, uh, this magical book, Celebrate Wildness, is available only at ferraferia.org. And that's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. And um, if you're tuning in late, uh, I am chatting with uh, Susan Griffith. And uh, she is the author of uh, Woman and Nature, as well as other famous works like A Chorus of Stones. And um, Susan, we were going to uh, talk a little bit more about um, uh, the issues that the book um, refers to, um, you know, that that are happening today. you know, speak to that a little bit, because uh, I know we we you know we've covered some, but I, I'm sure there's more in the book. Well, um, you know, we've got we've got look at what's happening now. I mean, um, Trump has weakened uh, the Obama era fuel economy and greenhouse gas standards. Uh, he doesn't. He's a he's, he's a climate denier. Um, he's revoked California's power to set stricter tailpipe emissions. He's um, threatening uh, the, the kind of sovereignty of our national park system with uh, allowing mining and various other op- commercial operations in them. Um, he's uh, he, he's um, withdrawn the legal justification for an Obama-era rule that limited mercury emissions, which is 
extreme from coal power plants are extremely important to human health as well as the health of the planet. You know, it goes on and on. Um, and and he's also uh, really um, just a, a you know he's he's a rapist basically. I don't know how I was hemming and hawing, but I mean he he's been accused of rape by by more than one woman uh, and of sexual assault by at least 15 women. Um, and he's openly stated uh, that he likes to grab women's sexual parts. Um, we have we have a tape of him saying that, you know. So these these attitudes go together. It's something that we're uh, facing. And his racism is part of that too. His racism is part of his uh, denial of of nature and want, wanting to uh, have sovereignty over nature, not have to live in cooperation with nature. Well, and, and you know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, kind of uh, slapping palm uh, to forehead because, you know, <laughs> even though we've been talking about this, you know, I, I, I think I, uh, I kind of get it on a level that I really, you know, dots I hadn't actually connected before. I mean, you know, I've always said, you know, what's wrong with Republicans? You know, everything is always about money. And that's not to say the corporate Democrats aren't a problem, too. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. But, but I've always said, you know, these capitalists, whichever side they're on, you know, when they've destroyed the, the you know, clean air, they'll just figure out a way to make money off of it and sell us gas masks. <laughs> but as as I'm listening to you, you know, I'm thinking to myself, so, it, you know, I, I wondered how do they think they are going to escape the effects of their own devastation and destruction? I mean, is it psychologically because they really do think they're separate from it, immune from it? Well, it, you know, they don't. They don't even think, they don't put that into words, but they feel that. The whole system has that effect of making them feel that they're immune, that the only thing that, that is real to them are numbers on a page. Because they're not, you know, what are they doing with that wealth? What can you do with so much wealth? You can't do a great deal. You, you, you have, you know, three or four houses. I mean, a friend of mine who, who has more than one house once told me, um, you know, you wouldn't be it, it once you have more than one house you also have more than responsibilities for more than one house i live in one house which which i own i mean the bank really owns it but you know um it's 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 a lot of my time is taking up maintaining this house so it, it's they don't really what they're they're not enjoying this wealth they 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 give these extreme parties and uh, uh to, to make themselves think they're enjoying it but it's really not about pleasure. It's about power. And these numbers on on paper demonstrate power to them. And underneath that, I think, is a, is, is a terror. And underneath, they feel terror. I'm, and and um, I, I think that that explains a lot, that they're, they're, they're terrified of losing power. And, and that's the only relationship that they understand that they've come to understand is the relationship well, and, and of, the, of those who have power and those who don't. And they think only in those terms. That's There's no other way to explain McConnell than that. Well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you can think of it from the perspective of look 
at what they do, people who are powerless, and they don't want to be subjected to that same domination. Absolutely, absolutely. What they do to the powerless only deepens their own fear of becoming powerless. Yeah, yeah, that makes such perfect sense. I'm studying right now because of another book that I'm writing. I'm studying um, uh, serial killers and psychopaths. And it's, it's, you know, Trump has many times been called a sociopath, and he clearly is. And I think that's probably true of McConnell, too. And they're incapable uh, out of habit. I mean, maybe there's a capability there somewhere that could be sparked, but, but out of habit... They do, they don't empathize. They they only think in terms of hierarchy and what I can do to you, uh, and what you can do to me, and and they want to have the upper hand at every moment. Of course, Trump was raised that way. His, his father told him very young, you have to be a killer, and he is. Yeah. Well, and and I wonder if you have a theory about this, um, you know, because this is what you're triggering uh, in my mind here. All right, so we have those sorts of people. Um, And I guess I wonder, well, what about the rest of us? What makes us so passive? What makes us so uh, willing to accept it? Uh, I mean, I've been thinking a lot lately about how we normalize abuse uh, and exploitation. And I I don't know, you probably heard the expression, the Democrats always bring a knife to a gunfight. Um, I just wonder why we tolerate it all, uh, even the press. Like we're saying, the press is, you know, um, not reacting, I, I think, um, equal to the devastation happening out there. Um, what's that about? That makes me nuts. <laughs> uh, well, I think there is a lot more reaction than there's been in the past. I mean, I, I, I'm actually feeling the other way. I'm feeling like at last the press is finally really reacting. There are a lot of people who are very outspoken and, and, and uh, speaking of Trump as a psychopath and, and saying this is completely unacceptable. All kinds of people, even Republicans. I mean, this group of um, Republicans who, who made this just devastating ad uh, about Trump uh, and the danger he is to our, our whole country. So um, I, I'm... I'm well, my experience right now is that people are finally standing up and, and telling the truth, and that's, uh, that's very hopeful for me. Well, I agree. I agree. But I guess, and, and they, look, maybe it's just me because I'm not a timid person, you know. Um, and and I, I don't know. I guess I just feel like it's not enough. Um, I mean, why have there not been masses of people in the street like there are now for Black Lives Matter. You know, where are all the, you know, the the sane Republicans? You know, I mean, it's 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 like they it, it feels like they're um you know, they're crickets uh in the background rather than I, I don't know. I guess I just want to see uh a more forceful um wave uh, and maybe everybody's just sitting back and waiting for the election. I don't know, you know. Well, but it, it well, just feels I, it, like so much is – go ahead. Um, you know, you have to factor COVID into the, into the equation. People are terrified of 
getting this illness. I am. I mean, I'm an older woman. I'm 77 years old. I have underlying conditions. So many people have underlying conditions, which is, by the way, could be a subject of a whole program. Why do so many people now have underlying conditions? Because of the the way we've been treating the environment. We are part of that environment. We're an expression of the environment. We're not living on the earth. We are the earth. And 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 when we mistreat the earth, we're, we're doing that to our own bodies. And and so we've got this terrifying illness out there, and it makes it hard to come out and demonstrate. I'm I'm surprised at the number of people who are demonstrating, and I think they're terrific. These these young people who are out there doing that, they're, they're, it's very hopeful. We we went through a whole period, um, you know, where feminism fell into decline and. And it was being put down by everybody in the press, and um, and uh, it's interesting. It's not surprising that along along with that, demonstrations and political activity was also uh, maligned. And um, the only literature that that uh, received any praise was literature that was completely apolitical. And now things have completely turned around on that score. But um, you know, I I don't really want to fault people in this period for not responding because I feel there is quite a lot of response. Uh, the the anger is so overwhelming that I feel and that many people feel. I do a lot of posting on Facebook and people respond and expressing their own anger over what's happening. And it's it's uh, it's hard to know what to do or what's going to be effective. But um, yeah. But the election is terribly important, and um, I, I myself am very worried about anybody who wants to have a president be perfect and represent perfectly all their point of views on the left, because that's not going to happen. And th- that request has been being made for my entire lifetime, 70 years. There have been there's been a left wing that says you have to you you know a far left wing. Say, you have to be perfect or I won't vote at all. And that has left us, excuse my French, but screwed. Because we we need to have a president who is at least a liberal, and then we can create radical change uh, in society. But when we're having to go back to reinvent the wheel all the time, we have to be fighting for a president that has a strategy to uh, to deal with a mass epidemic is ludicrous. What we should be fighting for is to get guns off the streets and to have many, you know, to have basically a, 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 a democratic socialism, which all the advanced European countries have now. That's what we should right. be able to fight for, rather than to fight for these elemental things, not to have federal troops brought in to uh, put down a, a, a lawful protest. We're having to fight issues like this, not to have uh, immigrants uh, treated like they were um, enemies and 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 herded into what amount to concentration camps. We're having to fight this well, sort of battle. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's outrageous that we have to, you know, kind of go back to uh, fight those sorts of things which are egregious and should never have been things that 
we should have to deal with in our lifetime. I mean, I was reading an article by um, Umair Haik, I think, if I am pronouncing his name properly. He's supposed to be one of the top 50. I'm sorry? He's on Medium. Yeah, he's on Medium. Yeah. And he, he he wrote this article about how uh, Americans uh, are traumatized in mass, you know, uh, in, in, that predator capitalism, you know, keeps us on the precipice. Uh, you know, people don't even get chemotherapy because it might, you know, bankrupt their families after they die. Instead of getting guns off the street, instead we teach our kids to do fire drills in the event there's a shooter in the, uh, you know, in, in the school. And that doesn't even get into the, you know, the income inequality and the stagnant wages and uh, and, and all of that. And it's uh, it, it, it just, it, you know, and, and he says, you know, Americans are literally prey uh, because other countries who are, you know, democratic socialist countries, they have capitalism, yes, but it's not capitalism run amok. And, you know, I, I think what most people don't understand, and I, and I think this is a failure of the educational system, I mean, when I interviewed Richard Wolf, he talked about how colleges won't, wouldn't even let professors teach anything but capitalism if they expected to get tenure. So is it no wonder the vast majority of people out there don't understand how much they would benefit from democratic socialism because they hear that word socialism and it just, you know, the, like the Fox News types, you know, they um, make them think that it's about communism. I, I, I mean, it's, there's it's, a lot of layers. It's been a long process. And it, it actually started in the 19th century, you know, uh, throwing Emma Goldman out of the country, and um, it, 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 you know, um, what I what I would love to see is everybody. Of course, it's not possible, but you know, if we could begin to interview people from Norway and what their lives are like. I mean, if you go to Norway, it's such a different feeling than it is here, and uh, there's not. Everybody's not afraid and 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 angry and frozen because their basic ne- they can feel safe. They feel safe. Their basic needs are met. Um, or the kind of things you know. France is not a perfect country by any manner of means, and there are plenty of capitalist exploitation there. But if you get sick in France, you don't worry at all. You have a, a healthcare system that pays for everything, including. You can you're sent off three weeks to uh, take what they call take the waters. They call it philosotherapy. To uh, you know your doctor can prescribe that, and you're three weeks you're swimming around in salt water and getting massages, which is uh, a very good for your health and, and doesn't always have to involve giant pharmaceutical companies or surgical interventions that are expensive and bad for the body. You know. Americans are really deprived at this point. We were at one point considered the most um, uh, lucky, the most fortunate of people, and now we're, we're deprived. Well, yeah, and if we say we want anything, uh, you know, we're called, uh, you know, the rhetoric is we're lousy takers, lazy takers, you know. 
um, and, uh, and and so many people fall for it, you know. And and I wonder if that goes back to the ingrained racism, because they're so afraid that someone who's not white is going to benefit from uh, some social program, you know. I, I mean, I it's almost it's as the if other... they've, it... yeah. It's the other way around, really. I think racism uh, developed out of an economic situation. Racism was developed as a rationale for exploitation, for slavery, and then for uh, economic servitude. And, you know, right after the, the, the Civil War, there was a brief period of Reconstruction in which the poor white population and the, newly, uh, the people who were newly freed from servitude uh, joined together black and white together without racism with a common cause and they were making many wonderful radical uh, uh, inventions of educational institutions and um, uh, schools and libraries and, and, and there was you know there, there was both communities and uh, of course the ruling plantation Owners put a stop to that, and and uh, it, it was very unfortunate because you know had Lincoln lived, we'd look we'd be looking at a very different South today. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think of it as a it's a class war too. You know, and it doesn't seem like people yeah. want to use that phrase. Uh, but I think it is a class war, and I've really begun to think that, um, you know, going back to this idea of uh, normalizing abuse and exploitation, uh, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a former Catholic, and I grew up looking at Jesus on the cross. And, you know, growing up a Catholic, you're taught to be, you know, to sacrifice and suffer is somehow noble and brings you closer to God. Well, you know, that feels like um, brainwashing people to accept abuse. Uh, and I don't know, it, it, it feels like Americans have turned into a group of sadists and masochists, you know, rather than, uh, you know, well, people. Uh, um, no, please, come, go ahead. Yeah. I'm glad you bring that up because I do think I, I wrote a book about pornography and and um, it, it is basically pornography is a sadomasochistic literature literature sadomasochism and and I think that um, capitalism is basically a, a sadomasochistic system that what it's evolved to now certainly um, so what you know if you look at it, you know the, the, it was something that was so clear to everybody in the death of, of um, George Floyd. And, and that was the look on that cop's face as he was murdering him. It was pleasure. He was taking pleasure in what he was doing to that man. And um, so that is sadism. And, of course, Trump is very clearly a sadist. He's known to be cruel, and Mary Trump's new book is making that clear, too. So, so um, we're, we're living in a, but it's a system that encourages sadism. It's not caused by sadism. It's the system itself that encourages it somewhere. We became addicted. It's an addiction. It's, it's, it's perhaps even more addiction, addictive than, than various substances like cocaine and, and whatever else it is. Um, 
crystal meth. It's more addictive than any of those substances. It is an addiction to power, again. And um, power as, as a sort of solution to everything. And insulating uh, the powerful from any uh, emotional suffering, from insulating them from suffering, which, of course, we know doesn't that's impossible. You cannot be insulated from suffering. The one part, uh, you talk about suffering as part of Christianity. It's also part of Buddhism. And I I don't fault Christianity itself, (coughs) and certainly not Buddhism. I think suffering is part of life. We we all have to die. That's suffering. And the process of death is, is suffering. But you if you approach it from the point of view that we're all in this together, <coughs> we're a community, it, it ameliorates the suffering a great deal and that we're part of a life process that has meaning and it's larger than us. <coughs> and um, that changes both our behavior and it changes the psyche, the psychology, and it makes suffering more bearable. <coughs> But, you know, but a lot of the suffering, aside from death, you know, and sickness, which, uh, you know, sometimes can't be um, avoided, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe part of part of the reason we're sick is the food industry and, you know, the stuff we're doing the planet and Monsanto and and all of that. But, um, you know, but, but I think a lot of the suffering is from institution you know, whether it's what the church teaches or whether it's capitalism or whether it's institutionalized racism or sexism, um, it's, it's um, suffering, you know, of not, you know, of institutions making, you know, um, and I don't know. And, and I guess it just bothers me that there's not more resistance to it. And I tend to go to blaming religion uh, you know, to a certain extent. I mean, it can't. I don't lay it all at the feet of religion, but you know, certainly. Uh, and you know, you've said Buddhism too. What better way to keep up, you know, the masses down if you know they somehow think uh, suffering and sacrifice brings them closer to God? You know, well, um, in, in I don't know. Way, it just makes me angry. <laughs> okay, I I I know that suffering can be elevated. Particularly, it's women who you know who who are supposed to suffer in that way and suffer their whole lives. So I I agree with you, <clears throat> but there's another way to look at suffering, which is as part of life. And <clears throat> if you deny that suffering is part of life, that is also part of the problem. In other words, if you believe that you well, get so many numbers after your name after your name. You know, uh, if you if you have so many billions of dollars that you're going to evade suffering, and clearly you don't, you can't. It's part of na- life, and if you accept it as part of life, so we're talking about two different things here. I agree with you. Yeah, maybe so. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think some suffering could be avoided if if our society was structured differently or of different course. things were taught. Yeah, you know, uh, and, and and if we just took that out of the equation, you know, if people didn't have to work three jobs to make ends meet, you know, if they were taught to look for their quality of life, because I don't think we are. Um, I, I don't know. I, I I just think we're beaten down, and there's not a lot out there to encourage us to be anything but, um, you know. But I wouldn't. The, I, would, um, I wouldn't extrapolate from that that it's it's religion. I mean, in the in the African American community, religion has given that community in general enormous strength. You know, you have to remember that Martin Luther King came out of the church. He was a reverend, and, and uh, a, a lot of the great civil rights leaders, uh, William Barber, have come from the church, and it's a different sort of church. In in in, the, in have you read James Cone? Do you know his work? And he talks about what Christianity yeah. is in the black community, and when when you say Jesus loves me, that is a revolutionary statement. That's a revolutionary statement. In other words. You know, you white plantation owners can can be dreadful and sadistic towards us, but Jesus loves me. See, so it's mm. it's it's. Uh, I I I think that it's a much more complex issue than than you know. Yeah. Of course, religion, uh, you know, white people's religion being part of the system uh, has 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 particularly in the you know in earlier centuries has played a role, uh, the role that you speak of. But you know, um, the current pope uh, is has aligned himself with liberation theology. So I, I don't I don't agree with his views on feminism, but he's not hard line on that. So it's it's a, it's an evolving process. But I think the real issue here is that um, that life uh, we are all we're like uh, we're all like the grass and the trees and the flowers that you maybe, hopefully you can find one of those things outside your window or you'll see one at some point during your day-to-day, you're not different from that form of life. And you know that that tree will not live forever, nor will you. And so if you accept that, the transient nature of life, it's very hard to accept. It takes uh, a lot of inner work to accept it. But it, it, it itself is a major life task, which our society does not focus on. It focuses on pretending that we're above nature and we're not touched by nature and we can control nature, which obviously we can't. So we're facing not only the crisis of COVID, but we're facing uh, climate change, uh, a ter- terrifying scenario of t- climate change. When you have the temperatures going up to 100 degrees in the Arctic Circle, you know there is a very serious scenario that we're facing right now. And, our, yeah. and, and, and the psychology that we have of power and domination uh, is not equipped to deal with that. <clears throat> so while we, we make changes, uh, but making changes, let, let us put it this way, if while we make changes in society, we we counter racism, 
we we counter the hierarchy that excludes women and people of color, and we that is also shifting the psyche. So it's not it's not a one way street. They work together. The social structure enforces <coughs> the psychological mindset that somehow we can be above it all, and the and when you shift the social structures, it allows for you to have another kind of psychology, which is we're all in this together. I'm in communion, and I have trust in the process. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you, Susan. Um, You know, it reminds me of the idea of uh, budgets or uh, an expression of our morality, you know, our governmental budgets. Um, thank you so much. Um, this has been uh, an extraordinary conversation. I've learned so much from you today. Uh, I want to just thank you. Thank you for your time. And, uh, uh, you know, I hope you will come back and uh, we can talk about some of your other, um, you know, some of your other works, uh, either published or uh, about to be. Um, so I want to give you the last word here. Uh, is there anything you want listeners to know about that um, uh, you know we haven't talked about? Maybe you have uh, something on your website, classes coming up, books coming out. Um, you know, a final word for you, please um, share. Oh well, thank you. Um, well, I'm writing a book about how to write. It's called Out of Silent Sound, Out of Nothing Something. And uh, it addresses process as well as craft, and uh, so and I teach writing one on one, and I can do it at a distance. So you can telephone me at five one zero five two eight nine two nine six, or or write to my email, uh, griffinsusan at comcast dot net, and uh, ask more questions. And I I work with you by the hour, or I read a manuscript, and um, I love that work and welcome you into into a class. Okay. Well, that's uh that's certainly a, an incredible opportunity uh you know for anyone that um um, you know, is, is feeling pulled in that direction right now. Um, well, again, Susan, thank you so much uh, for all your work in the world, for your time today and your flexibility with our technical glitch on Wednesday. And uh, I've just really enjoyed the conversation. And I, I hope you have too and that you will come back to the show. Thank you. I hope I, I, I look forward to it. Okay. All right. Good, goodbye then. Um, okay. Have a great weekend. You too. Well, that about does it uh, for today, listeners. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. We went a little bit uh, over, but that's okay. Um, uh, And I just want to invite you to uh, go to Susan's website, uh, susangriffin.com, or uh, go look at uh, her book titles. It's Woman and Nature. Um, a Chorus of Stones uh, with the subtitle The Private Life of War. Um, so check those out. Um, I'm sure after this conversation you will realize that uh, uh, those are books you definitely want to have on your shelf. And uh, right now a lot of us have more time to read. So uh, please uh, you know, take advantage of this time. You know, Do something uh, enjoyable and uplifting uh, and informative with it. 
All right, I will be back with you uh, on Wednesday, and uh, I look forward to it. And uh, please do remember, click the follow button on the show page. Uh, That way you will get a reminder in your uh, email inbox of uh, who my guest is, what our topic is, and it will provide a convenient little button that will take you right to the the page, right to the show. Uh, That way you don't have to remember anything. You don't have have to uh, think is is today the day Uh, you don't have to think well what's that website again Uh, it will just be right there for you so uh, make it easy on yourself Uh, that about does it for me Uh, just a reminder um, what we focus on it thrives and what uh, we neglect it withers so uh, think about that uh, the next time you're putting energy into something make sure it's something you want to thrive in your life all right thank you listeners Uh, until Wednesday uh, and we will meet again bye-bye